Many people, especially those who don't read the Bible, would be surprised to know how many common expressions in English originate from the Bible. Here are just a few, and those of you who do read the Bible uh, may be challenged to think in the Bible exactly where they come from. A den of lions. The apple of my eye. The writing on the wall. A leopard cannot change its spots. Nothing new under the sun. The salt of the earth. A thorn in the flesh. Walking on water. A wolf in sheep's clothing. And here's one to test you out. A little bird told me. Today I want to focus on another expression. A Damascus Road experience. A Damascus Road experience or a Damascus Road conversion is defined as a single dramatic event which causes a person to be aligned with something they previously found anathema. Today as we continue our series in the New Testament book of Acts, which we've entitled The Spreading Flame, we've come to the very incident which gave rise to the expression, a Damascus Road experience. It is the account of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, which is the Damascus Road experience. You'll find it in our reading, which Mike read for us earlier on, in Acts 9, verses 1. We're actually looking, I should have changed this. We're looking at just verses 1 to 9, Uh, which you'll find on page 1102. It will help if you've got a Bible, just to open the Bible at that particular place. Uh, Just by way of explanation, as I was preparing, I had so much material, we decided to divide this into two parts, so you'll get the second half, God willing, in the next sermon. So we're just focusing on verses 1 through 9. Now, this is such an important event that Luke, the author of Acts, tells the story three times in his book. Here is a narrative, and twice later, in Paul's own words, as he shares his Damascus Road experience. First of all, to a hostile crowd, you'll find that in Acts 22, and then before a king and his entourage, you'll find that in Acts 26. Each of these three accounts adds extra pieces of information, but the basic story is the same. How a man who was vehemently opposed to Jesus of Nazareth committed to destroying his followers, became in a dramatic moment a follower of Jesus and went on to become his greatest ambassador. Or as he later wrote about himself, how a blasphemer, a persecutor and a violent man became a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. It would be no exaggeration to say that this one event that occurred on this one day, in this one moment of time, changed the subsequent course of history. Now, many features of this Damascus Road experience are uniquely Saul's Damascus Road experience. Few of us would or should expect to be knocked to the ground by a flashing light and hear an audible voice from heaven. None of us will personally see the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ 
as Saul himself did. He himself describes his experience in 1 Corinthians 15 as the last in line of the resurrection appearances of Jesus, beginning with his apostles, and he describes his experience as abnormal. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 8, he says, Last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. But when all these unique features of the Damascus Road experience are taken into account, there are still other essential features of the story which encourage us to believe that a Damascus Road experience is still possible for anyone, even the most unlikely person like Saul of Tarsus. Maybe in God's providence, it is possible that even today is your day when God steps into your life in a decisive way, in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. In a series of sermons on Acts, the American Kent Hughes writes, Our Damascus roads are generally less dramatic than Saul's, but they are meant to have the same effect, to break our compulsive independence and arrogance and bring us to Christ for salvation or reconsecration. So, with this in mind, let's look more closely at what actually happened to Saul in Acts 9 and identify this radical change that took place in his life, which should be common to all who truly experience Christian conversion. Now, there are three parts to any such experience. There's the before, what you were before. There's the experience itself. And then there's the after the change that takes place. We will look at Paul Saul's life after his conversion in the next in our series. In fact, much of the second half of Acts is all about what happened to Saul who became Paul the Apostle. Today I want to focus on just these two sides. What he was before and what happened to him on the road to Damascus. And to help us remember these things, I've chosen two very common phrases as well to describe these two parts of his life and experience. Here's the first phrase we can use about Saul of Tarsus. Before his conversion, I think it would be true to say, he was a man who was set in his ways. Many young people today, not least young men, take time to decide what they really want to do with their lives before setting out on a career or pursuing an ambition. But not Saul of Tarsus. He was a young man whose direction in life was set from an early age. Let me just summarize what we know about this man, what we know about Saul of Tarsus. First of all, he was a privileged young man. He was born into a wealthy family in Tarsus, a leading city of culture, education, commerce in the Roman Empire. He is born a Jew, named after Israel's first king, Saul. But he also possesses Roman citizenship, highly prized in the world of his day. And such privilege was not wasted on this man, this young man, for he was also, secondly, a brilliant young man, with a prodigious intellect, a razor-sharp mind, conversant with both Greek and Roman thinking, fluent in both Greek and Latin. But after graduation, he decides to devote himself exclusively, particularly, to his religious faith and heritage. So he undertakes postgraduate studies with one of the leading Jewish scholars of the day, a rabbi called Gamaliel, for he is also a religious young man. He is scrupulous in his devotion to the law of Moses, God's revealed law given through Moses. He's a member of the party of the Pharisees, 
the strictest, most orthodox religious group in Judaism. He is a young man who is going places, close to, if already not, a member of the inner councils of the religious leaders of Israel in Jerusalem. And it is this zeal for God which identifies him above all else, finally, as an angry young man. He is fanatically zealous to stamp out heresy of any kind by persuasion if possible, if not by force. And this has brought him into direct conflict with a new religious movement which had recently burst onto the scene in Israel, centered on one Jesus of Nazareth, whom it was claimed was the promised Messiah, or to use the Greek term, the Christ. To Saul, such a claim was frankly ridiculous. For this Jesus had been crucified in Jerusalem by the Roman authorities at the righteous, as he saw it, instigation of the Jewish religious leaders, not only killing him, but killing his claim. For any good Jew knew that a person who was hung on a tree was under God's curse. Yet somehow it had not killed off this movement. For the followers of the way, as they called themselves, claimed that this Jesus had risen from the dead. He had appeared to many of them. Thousands of others had become followers of Jesus. Not only in Jerusalem, but the movement now was beginning to spread out beyond the borders of Judea and Samaria into other parts of the Roman Empire. Action needed to be taken. And Saul, young Saul of Tarsus, was just the action man for the job. So Luke describes, if you've been with us in our series, Saul's activities as he comes into contact and conflict with the followers of Jesus. We first meet Saul, if you know the story, when an angry religious mob in Jerusalem comes face to face with a leading Christian preacher called Stephen. His message so inflames them that they drag him out of the city and stone him to death. And Saul is present there at the stoning of Stephen. For we learn that at 7.58, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul is instrumental in the follow-up and the round-up of Christians in the persecution of the church in Jerusalem. Acts 8.3 tells us, But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women, put them into prison. But Saul is not content with this. His anger, his zeal is not being abated. The fire is still burning fiercely. For we read as we come to Acts chapter 9 that Saul is still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Uh, the Greek verb there, breathe out, is literally breathe in. You remember when you were a child or you read to your children Jack and the Beanstalk? And you, you remember what the giant said when Jack was hiding? said, fee-fi-fo-fum, I smell the blood of an Englishman. And he's out to get him. Well, fee-fi-fo-fum, Saul smells the blood of Christians. And what he breathes in, he breathes out with murderous actions, determined to catch the followers of Jesus whoever they may be, wherever they may run and hide. So his activities are expanded in a new role. He becomes chief inquisitor in the pursuit of fugitives. Those Christians who have escaped from Jerusalem under persecution have fled to the surrounding regions and cities. So he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, 
he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. The persecuted followers of the way have fled from Jerusalem, but as Jewish exiles or refugees, they are still under the jurisdiction of the Jewish authorities, under the synagogues in each of the places where they have gone. So Saul goes to the Jewish high priest, he gets extradition warrants, as we call them today, for any of the followers of Jesus, and he says, I'm going to head off to Damascus, head north, in neighbouring Syria, to catch these Christians, to imprison them, and to drag them back for trial, and maybe death, in Jerusalem. Here is a young man, who is in absolutely no doubt, about the course of action he is taking. The followers of Jesus may call themselves followers of the way. As far as Saul is concerned, they are following the wrong way, not the way of the Lord as they claim. So the honour of God determines, demands that he takes action by whatever means and whoever, male or female, is involved. Now, you only have to think about this kind of thing. If you think, how could someone do that with such religious zeal? Just look at what is happening in our world today as religious zealots acting as they believe in the name of Islam are prepared to do horrendous acts, not only killing themselves, but people standing by. And every day we see in our newspapers the effects of religious zeal of this particular kind. Many years later, Saul, now known better by his Roman name, Paul, wrote about his pre-Damascus road experience. He gives what you could describe as his pre-conversion CV circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. In his commentary on Acts, Robert Longenecker sums up his position and conviction. Humanly speaking, he was immune to the Christian proclamation and immensely satisfied with his own ancestral faith. Now it's possible, probably likely, that you, maybe most of your friends, uh, may not identify with Saul of Tarsus in terms of your own convictions, let alone any particular vehemence you have against Christians. But nonetheless, what we have said of Saul is true of all of us. We are set in our ways. And as the years go by, we become more set in our ways. For we are born on the wrong way, and unless we change course, we'll continue on the wrong way. As the policeman said in response to the drunk man who asked him in the street, can you tell me the way to hell? Yes, sir, just keep straight on. The wise writer of the book of Proverbs sums it up, the wrong way. He says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. It may well be that the first Christians were also called followers of the way because of the claim of Jesus, who claimed he was the only way. John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is no easy matter for anyone, let alone a Saul of Tarsus, to leave the wrong way and to follow the way. Conversion is a remarkably difficult thing. In that last analysis, 
Only God can do it. Sometimes surprised when people say, oh, I went to a meeting and uh, only one person became a Christian. Just one person becoming a Christian, friends, is a miracle. A miracle of God's grace and power to turn someone around and change them. The longer I'm a pastor, the more difficult I realize it is. When you're young, you think, give them a good sermon, it'll convince the crowds, they'll raise their hands, they'll make a decision, whatever you want to call it. The longer I go and the more difficult I realize it is to turn a person's life around. And the older you get, the harder it gets. Because you become set in your ways. And increasingly in our society, I believe if you look at the news and what is happening in the media, in the world of culture and education, the souls of Tarsus, who are vehemently opposed to the Christian faith, are rising in numbers and vehemence. I don't exaggerate that. You just need to look at the press. John Stott writes very helpfully in the Bible Speaks Today commentary on Acts. There are many souls of Tarsus in the world today. Like him, they are richly endowed with natural gifts of intellect and character. Men and women of personality, energy, initiative and drive, having the courage of their non-Christian convictions, utterly sincere, but sincerely mistaken, travelling, as it were, from Jerusalem to Damascus, instead of Damascus to Jerusalem, hard, stubborn, even fanatical, in their rejection of Jesus Christ. Those of you who are involved in the academic world will know what I'm talking about. If you know anything about the media and the world that we live in, you will recognize such people. But John Stott adds, but they are not beyond God's sovereign grace. When if we believe that? You often think, what an effect you would have if Richard Dawkins came to faith in Christ. Wow, he's a stupid. Not at all. You need look no further than what happened to Saul of Tarsus. If a Saul set out on his journey north, you had suggested that he might be wrong, he would not even have given it a thought or entertained a doubt. And if you had suggested that he was going to arrive in Damascus a week later, a follower of this Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he would have laughed you to scorn. He was set in his ways. It seemed as nothing could change him. And humanly speaking, nothing could change him. But God met with him. So here's the second point. Only two this morning. Set in his way. Secondly, stopped in his tracks. The distance from Jerusalem, sort of north and that way a little bit, uh, to Damascus was about 150 miles in length. It would have taken about a week for Paul, Saul and his party, including soldiers or militia, to round up the Christians. Around about a week to get there. As with the previous incident that Luke records, another conversion is about to take, on a ro- take place on a road. If you want an interesting study, look at the roads in the Bible and things that happen on journeys. Very interesting. We are all on a journey, are we not? Uh, this time, however, there is no human agent involved, as there was with Philip, who met that Ethiopian, as we saw in the last in our series. It's doubtful whether Saul would have listened to any other human being. Now, as they near the ancient city of Damascus, a beautiful white city on a green plain, there is a dramatic divine intervention. Notice what happens. It's very difficult to define what happened because it's so remarkable. First of all, there is a bright light. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Verse 3. In later accounts, uh, we learn that this incident happened at noon. So the sun would have been at its brightest and fiercest 
But the light that shines from heaven outshines the sun and it literally knocks Saul and his companions to the ground. And as he lies there, Saul hears an audible voice. Someone addresses him by his name in Aramaic, his mother tongue, and asks him a question. He fell to the ground, verse 4, and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, Saul would have known from the Hebrew Scriptures the light, the voice from heaven, the twofold repetition of his name, which added extra intensity and seriousness, that this was a momentous experience, an encounter with God. He recognized the voice. But he couldn't understand was the question. The rather strange experience of this on Thursday when I went to visit Nita in hospital. As I was leaving, I said in my normal quiet tones, right, I'll see you tomorrow and pick you up, hopefully, to come out of hospital. A voice came from the other side and a nurse said, I recognize that voice. I looked and this young lady came around the corner. I said, do I know you? She said, probably not. I've been to your church once or twice, but I listen to your voice every week on the internet. Kind of weird experience. I think your name is Marion. So, Marion, when you listen on the internet, thank you for the illustration. Um, now, that, on a far more serious note, when Saul heard the voice from heaven, he recognized the voice. But what did the question mean? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So, the father's a confused question and a shocking answer. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? The word Lord, that can be translated just sirs, Greek word kurios, but almost certainly it's a, it's a word of reverence here by so. Who are you, Lord? God. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. You just imagine the impact this had upon him. Saul realizes and sees for himself who Jesus really is. He is not a dead heretic. He is the living Lord, risen. And in persecuting his followers, Saul has been persecuting Jesus. Saul thought he was serving the Lord by attacking the followers of Jesus, but in fact he was fighting against the Lord, fighting against the Lord Jesus. It is the Damascus Road experience, a single dramatic event which causes a person to be aligned with something they previously found anathema. Now, there have been all sorts of attempts to explain what happened to Saul on the road to Damascus, ranging from an attack of sunstroke to an epileptic fit. Neither of these, or any other natural explanation, can explain, not just the experience, but the change that followed that was so dramatic, so deep, and long-lasting. No, the explanation is not natural, but supernatural. For the Lord, the risen Lord Jesus, steps into his life, and he is changed forever, in this one moment of time. Now, as we've said, our own experience may not mirror that of Saul in intensity, in drama, in details. But for every person, let me try and summarize the basic features of a genuine conversion as I see them in Scripture. The first and most important thing to say above all else is that salvation is a supernatural event. Salvation is of the Lord. And while Paul is converted in a moment of time, God's work of grace in his life began before that, in God's period, the period of preparation. 
very rare that someone wants. It's impossible because we all have experiences that lead up to where we're at. Maybe this morning you're not a Christian. Maybe this is your, your moment. I'd be very surprised if there's anybody here that has happened before with, for example, people from China who've never heard the gospel before, have come into this church in the past and just suddenly heard the, the news for the first time. But most of us have some back experience of the Christian faith, some experience of who Jesus is, and usually some contact with someone who claims to be a Christian, if not of hearing sermons and downloading stuff off the internet, whatever it might be. When Paul tells his testimony, his story to King Agrippa in Acts 26, he adds a little detail, which is very interesting. Uh, he says in Acts 26, 14, we all fell to the ground. Here he's telling the story from his own perspective. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Acts 9 as well. Then he adds, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. The goad was usually a stick embedded with thorns or, or spikes of metal, uh, which a man would use to discipline an animal if you wanted an oxen to plow in a certain course or you're trying to train a donkey or, or whatever it might be. And, and you kept it on track by prodding it with a metal stick. Now, the most stupid thing the animal could do was to keep hitting back against the stick because the more you hit against it, the more painful it became. It was painful. It was a waste of time. And I believe that the Lord is speaking to Saul here. He's challenging him. He's saying, all your life, you've been resisting those goads which I've been using to try and steer you in the right direction. You've been going in the wrong way against the followers of the way. You can unearth some of these things as you read Saul's story, Paul's story. He talks in the book of Romans how, although outwardly he kept the law of Moses, yet inwardly, in his inner desires, particularly the Tenth Commandment, the, the commandment not to covet, Inwardly, he knew he was failing. His conscience was pricking him. We'd say that, wouldn't we? His conscience was pricking him. Uh, that was what he knew about Jesus. Uh, Dr. Donald Coggan, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, gives a convincing statement in which he believes that Saul would have either known Jesus or heard him because they were contemporaries in Israel about the same time. We have no evidence for that. But he certainly knew about Jesus. And then here's Saul going, persecuting these Christians, dragging them from their homes. And he would have seen their witness in the face of persecution like that from uneducated people. And especially, I believe, the clear and articulate witness of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. His courage and faith when he was being stoned, even forgiving his killers. All this time he was kicking against the goads, suppressing any doubts with even more fierce aggression. Uh, Carl Jung said, fanaticism is only found in individuals who are compensating secret doubts. And now I want to say this morning, to those of you who aren't yet Christians, you haven't crossed that line, you haven't been converted, you haven't been turned around in your life, maybe God has been stirring your conscience giving you evidence from the life and teaching of Jesus, the witness and example of Christian friends. And yet, in a strange way, is it not human nature that the more convincing the evidence, the more you step back and say, no, I'm not going to do that, the more determined you become to resist what God is doing in your life. I've made up my mind, don't confuse me with the facts. But there needs to come a decisive moment in your journey to Damascus. So whatever journey you're on, however young or old you are. In another commentary on Acts, one we've recommended by Daryl Bock, he writes, even if at first his response to Christian preaching was negative, it still had an impact on Saul. 
His lips and actions reflected rejection, but God was at work opening his mind and heart until finally the light broke through. So that period of preparation in our lives must lead to a moment of conversion. For Saul it was when the light shone from heaven, he saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The moment when his life was turned around forever. And each of us needs that personal encounter with Jesus. That point in your life and experience where you submit to him and his claim on your life when you admit you've been going the wrong way and you bow before the one who is the true way. When your life is turned around. The Bible has a word to describe this. It's the word repentance. It's a Greek word that literally means a change of mind. Metanoia. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. Many years later, after this, speaking to intellectuals in the Greek city of Athens, Saul Paul now concludes his address to them by saying, Now God commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. By the man he has appointed, he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Acts 17, 30 to 31. And so I challenge you this morning, have you repented? Have you turned from your rebellion against God? Have you turned to God, trusting in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, salvation concludes with the response of obedience. Again, in one of his later testimonies, the one before a hostile crowd in Acts 22, Paul says, on hearing the voice from heaven, he also asked, What shall I do, Lord? He is now willing and ready to obey what the Lord Jesus tells him. In Acts 9, we learn the answer he was given. The Lord tells Saul, Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. In his testimony recorded in Acts 26, Paul says, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. You see, at this point in his experience, disobedience was still an option for Saul. He could still have turned his back and said, I'm not going to believe this. It's going to cost me too much to turn my back on all that I've stood for, all that I've done to admit I've been wrong. But he bowed his knee before Christ. And we too must obey the call of Christ to repent and to follow him and to lead a life that pleases him. Again, let me quote from John Stuck he summarizes it beautifully and helpfully. He says, To sum up, the cause of Saul's conversion was grace. The sovereign grace of God. But sovereign grace is gradual grace and gentle grace. Gradually and without violence, Saul, Jesus pricked Saul's mind and conscience with his goads. Then he revealed himself to him by the light and the voice, not in order to overwhelm him, but in such a way as to allow him to make a free response. And he concludes, Divine grace does not trample on human personality, rather the reverse, for it enables human beings to be truly human. It is sin which imprisons, it is grace which liberates. The grace of God so frees us from the bondage of our pride, prejudice and self-centeredness as to enable us to repent and to believe. So let me ask you, have you come to that point? Have you bowed the knee? Have you submitted to Christ? Maybe you've grown up here in Charlotte Chapel, you young people, you've grown up in, in the chapel. I grew up in a church like this, much smaller, but stood for pretty much the same thing. I've told you this before, by the time I was 12, I could quote 500 verses of the Bible by heart. 
mainly because we got cash prizes in Sunday school. But, and, and I could explain the gospel to you clearly. I could tell you how to become a Christian. But it was not until that one day, as a teenager, I heard the gospel, as I'd heard it hundreds of times before, and God laid his hand on my life, and I realized I had to make a stand. And God broke into my life, and I responded in faith to Jesus Christ, and my life was turned around. I knew it all before, but there had to come a point in my life. For some of you young people, that needs to be a point. Maybe this is God's point for you today. Why has brought you here to Charlotte Chapel? Maybe you're much older than that. You know the story. You know the gospel. Or maybe you're just learning about it. There has to come a point where you say, I will turn from my... By God's grace, you repent and you put your faith in Christ. And the Bible says when that happens... If anyone is in Christ, he becomes a new creation. The old is past. Everything becomes new. It's a humbling experience. Look how the story finishes. We're getting towards the end. Saul is humble before God. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and didn't eat or drink anything. Very strange, isn't it? He is seen truly for the first time, but he is blinded by the light. He expected to enter Damascus with his armed escort in triumph and power to lead the followers of Jesus away to prison and death. Instead, he enters Damascus in weakness, led by the hand. The arrester is arrested by God. The pursuer of Christians has been pursued by God. He is now a follower of the way. See, one of the marks of conversion that follows is that you're truly humble before God. Truly humble before God. You realize that God has broken into your life and all that you had pride in before is gone. Humbled before the cross of Christ, before the resurrected Jesus, raised from the dead, demonstrating that he truly has won the victory for salvation. Let me just say something in conclusion and summarize where we've gone. The, the Damascus Road conversion of Saul of Tarsus is compelling evidence for the reality and truth of the Christian faith. Way back in the 18th century, uh, there was a, a well-known statesman. His name was George Littleton. He was a lord. Actually, became a baron as well. Uh, and uh, he was an intellectual. He was a lawyer. And he set out to disprove or explain away the conversion of St. Paul. He realized he and a friend met together. The friend said, I'll disprove the resurrection of Jesus. You disprove the conversion of St. Paul and we've destroyed Christianity. If you could do that, it's absolutely true. You, you would. It would be finished. We'd all be finished. Close up Charlotte Chapel, set it and go home. Uh, months later, the two friends came back together and spoke to one another. Both of them ended in a totally different place than they expected when they started to write their books. And Littleton wrote a book entitled Observations on the Conversion and Apostleship of St. Paul. I see it's still available in Amazon. And his conclusion was this. The conversion and apostleship of St. Paul alone, duly considered, is itself, of itself, a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity to be a divine revelation. The famous Dr. Samuel Johnson regarded the work as, I quote, one to which infidelity has never been able to fabricate a specious answer. Here is proof, authentic proof, as every conversion is, of the power of Christ to transform people's lives. 
But it also says something else to us. To us and about your friends. Uh, Writing to his young colleague Timothy, Saul, who became Paul, of course, refers back to his his, his pre-Christian days, his conversion experience. Uh, and, And what he says in effect is, my conversion means there is hope for all, for everyone. This is what he writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, 15, 16. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. General. Of whom I am the worst. True. In terms of what he did. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Do you see what he's saying? If God could save a sinner like me, there is hope for any less sinner like you. If God could save a soul of Tarsus, he can save your son or your daughter, your mother or your father, your colleague or your friend. Because if anyone is in Christ, is a new creation. C.H. Spurgeon, preaching on these verses over a century ago, puts it beautifully. If the, grace, if the bridge of grace will carry the elephant, it will certainly carry the mouse. The bridge of grace will carry the elephant, certainly carry the mouse. I want to say today, there is hope for you. Whoever you are, whatever you may have done, even against Jesus and his followers, whatever you may have said in the past. And there is hope for all. Even the most unlikely of candidates, like Saul of Tarsus. Let's pray together. Now, in these final moments, I'd like you to do two things. If you're not a Christian this morning, maybe God has brought you here for this particular moment. This is your road to Damascus. If so, then in the quietness, just simply say to the Lord, Lord, I've been wrong. I've gone my own way. Rebelled against you. I'm set in my ways. Lord, help me to turn to you. Trust in Christ. Do a supernatural work in my heart and life as well. May I be born again of your Spirit. God will hear and answer such a prayer in a moment of time. And if, as many here would testify, you already are a Christian, you can look back on such a time your life. I want you to think of that person that you want to pray for this morning who you think is impossible and there's no hope. Be encouraged by Saul of Tarsus and bring them before the Lord right now. And ask God to intervene in their lives in a decisive way. Gracious God, thank you for the power of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Lord, help us to believe. And 
help our unbelief. Send us from this place with fresh hope. Fresh desire to pray for those who as yet do not know Christ. And for some of us to go out from here, new people in Christ. Changed in a moment. We ask it in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.